What's up, guys? We got Brad Luttrell on the episode this week. He has started a company called Go Wild. For anybody that loves the outdoors, loves hunting, fishing, anything like that, this is definitely going to be an episode you want to tune into and listen. Uh, he is somebody that you would not say has the ideal uh, background or the ideal um, you know, molding for an entrepreneur to use the words that we're about to talk about. Um, but he's defied the odds. He's pushed through negativity and overcome obstacles. And that's what all that's what entrepreneurship's all about. And so that's the big takeaway of this episode. Um, beyond learning about what he's building and the amazing things that he's um, making possible with his application when it comes to outdoors. Um, but the big thing I want you all to take away from this episode is what it takes to be an entrepreneur when negativity and perceptions are placed on you, um, that you don't belong or that your product doesn't belong or that's not going to be successful. And he has some really great ways to navigate that uh, mentally, but also with some processes that you can put in place with your business. Uh, so you're going to want to tune into this one. Let's go ahead and jump into it. guys you got evan and logan here from middle tech we are excited about this episode uh, we got brad latrell on the episode and we're right here in the bluegrass and one of the big themes in the bluegrass is enjoying the outdoors and what he's building is an amazing uh, application and platform that allows people to enjoy the outdoors and share that experience uh, so we're looking forward to him telling that story and then like i keep saying we're really going to kind of focus this episode this season rather on making sure we're giving you guys some ways to come away from these episodes and apply learnings. Uh, so his big learning is, um, we'll get into it, but you know, any kind of negative feedback you get over your career, any kind of obstacles, uh, any kind of perceptions that people place on you, you really got to power through. Um, so I'm going to welcome him on. Brad, welcome on, man. Thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So let's just jump right into your background. Kind of walk us through where you're from, uh, education, and then we'll kind of jump into some of the specifics. Yeah, so I, I grew up, I'm from Kentucky, and I grew up in Appalachia down in southeastern Kentucky. It's in the Cumberland Gap. So I was born in Harlan County, grew up in Bell County. It's Middlesbrough was the city. And, uh, you know, we're an hour from the interstate. You, you know, if you want to go to the good hospital, you're like two hours away. And it's very, very rural. And, uh, you know, my, my grandfather was a mechanic, grew up playing in, uh, like coal piles and garages and, uh, you know, with, on top of spare car parts. And, um, I played a lot outside and, you know, I, I shot my first gun at six years old, like very, very Kentucky childhood. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I pretty much grew up knowing, uh, I wanted to go to university of Kentucky. And that's like what you do or like there is no other school in in yeah. the southeast. You know, uh, Louisville is a, the big rivalry where I'm at now. I live in Louisville, but even in Lexington, you know, that's what people think of. But it's funny. It's totally different down south um, in the southeast. You know, it was Tennessee. And and I grew up knowing I wanted to go to school. You know, I, I, I learned a lot from my dad, who was a hard worker. But, um, you know, at the time, I, I used to think like one of the last of my family lineage that probably wouldn't get a college degree. 
Um, you know, me and my sister ended up getting degrees and, uh, my aunt had a degree, his sister, but you know, it wasn't something my, my family had not, uh, really gone to school and done the degree thing. And I used to think that that like, Oh, forever, you know, our lineage will go to college and this will be how it is. And things have shifted a lot over the years. It's kind of interesting. I've kind of even changed how I think of my son's, uh, future, but despite that, you know, I learned a lot from, from growing up there on the work ethic side and, and, um, you know, a lot from him, my grandfather. And, you know, I, I even remember you know, as a kid, like straightening nails, you know, we didn't throw anything away. So like, if you, you know, you, we would, if we took something apart, we'd pull all the nails out and save them for later. So I was building a lot of that foundation to what I use today. It's totally different. You know, I'm not out here uh, building something from hammer and nails, but, you know, I ended up applying a lot of that when I did go to Kentucky. I went to Kentucky and got a, a journalism degree. I know that's exactly what everybody on this podcast thought <laughs> the uh, the tech startup guy was going to say, uh, but but I I went to um, you know UK. I I didn't I didn't have a great GPA because I was really focused on learning to be a great journalist and worked for the newspaper there. I ended up uh, working my way up to being the editor in chief, which at Kentucky I was really proud of that. It was a daily newspaper. It was actually one of the largest at the time. Um, I think it was the third largest daily newspaper in the state, which was pretty cool considering that was behind the Courier Journal and the, the uh, Lexington Herald Leader. And um, I learned a lot about that. And I, I tried to do that for two years and, you know, I ended up pivoting and I'm sure we'll get into some of my career background. But, you know, from childhood through, um, you know, I guess, what are you, 22 when you graduate college? you know, everything going up to that, I'd been focused. I kind of knew, I knew I wanted to go to Kentucky and at some point in high school, I knew I wanted to go into journalism. So, um, you know, really at that, up to that point, and even years after college, I didn't really know that I wanted to build a tech company. It's not like I had that kind of foresight. I mean, I've definitely had a few hard pivots in my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, one thing you mentioned that really kind of hit home for me was, you know, growing up, the, your work ethic came from your family and your environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so true. You know, when you're growing up, you really get some of the early groundworks and the foundation of who you are from your environment. And so where you grow up and the city you grow up in, the community you're a part of, that carries over into your professional career more than people might think. Uh, and that, that reminded me of, you know, my dad. You know, I grew up working in the yard with him. Uh, we worked on things we didn't really have to because we had the money to pay somebody to do our yard. But me, me and my dad spent a lot of weekdays working in the yard and getting dirty. And that's something that I still... I always look back on it and think that, you know, I got, you know, a lot of my work ethic from just doing things that, um, you know, were hard, but we did it for the sake of just, you know, working. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, uh, I mean, it's just, it's a hardworking people. It gets a really bad rap where I'm from. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stereotypes that are true, but, uh, it's, they're not lazy. You know, people want to work yeah. and, um, I, I grew up absorbing that. And I, you know, even when my, my grandfather, who was one of the most influential people in my life, uh, I, I don't know if I've ever even told anybody this story. Um, it's kind of been very, it's a very private moment for me, but I mean, even, in, um, this just shows you how different life is down there. Uh, when he died, me and my cousins at the, the gravesite actually buried him. We actually, you know, shovels and, and, wow. uh, bur buried my grandfather. And, and the joke was, um, you know, we're all, we're all standing there in nice clothes with, with shovels in hand. And after we were done, uh, one of them looked up and said, well, Papa had to put us to work one more time, you know, and it's like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. very, very much, uh, ref that that's very like in summary of, of how I grew up, like at the time as a kid, you, d you don't appreciate what you're learning. Um, but I, it hit me in high school one time I had, a, I had a dear friend come over and, 
you know, he's different still. And he came over though. And I had to finish, I don't remember where, I think I was pulling nails actually, um, from, from something my dad was doing. And, and he came over and he wanted me to go, we wanted to go, I was in a band and he wanted me to go play music with him. And I was like, well, I got to get this done before I can go anywhere. And I remember him, he didn't say, I'll help you. And he picked up a, a hammer and he didn't know how to like how to do what I was doing. And I remember like that was the first kind of moment where I realized like I'm learning a lot of cool stuff that, that I'm going to be able to apply this. And like not everybody's learning to do what I've done. I mean, I dug ditches. I did like every and my dad, like, you know, it'd be 90 degrees and we're digging a ditch or, um, you know, we're tearing shingles off a roof to to redo it or or whatever it was. And it was always like this is why you go to school and, you know, very much trying to make me do more for my life. His dad did the same. I mean, he quit when, when my dad was born, um, my grandfather, different grand, my, my paternal grandfather, not the one I was talking about a second ago, who was also a hard worker. He quit his job in the coal mines because he wanted my dad to, to not do that. He didn't want him to go into the coal mines and to, uh, have to live like that. So he actually went into insurance so that he would have a good role model. And my dad ended up going into insurance and he's been very successful at it. Uh, but it's, you know, it just, it's very much proof to what I'm saying. You learn what you pick up and learn from people, uh, at that early age, you're going to apply it throughout your whole life. And I, I think about that all the time with my kids, man. Like, what am I teaching them now? Cause my son's definitely at the age now getting ready to turn five and I know he's absorbing things. He's going to carry forever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, you know, I'm sure you picked up your love for the outdoors from family as well. I'm, you know, I imagine walk through kind of the early stages of your, enjoyment of the outdoors you mentioned you shot a gun so early in your life but yeah. let's use that as kind of the bridge into into what you're building now yeah i mean i uh i didn't i didn't hunt really until i was a teenager i remember, I remember my first time my dad took me out squirrel hunting but um you know grew up grew up like i played outside it was like a neighborhood you play outside until it's dark and then you'd hear mom yelling for you and it was like a nightly routine to come in and have ticks picked out of my hair like you just didn't think about things the same way now everybody gets all freaked out about disease and everything yeah. but uh you know it's just that was life and uh i i i did uh i didn't really hunt a ton before college i mean small game and then you know when i came back from college me and my sister would really started with like our our Thanksgiving hunts, we would go on Thanksgiving after college. And it was a way for us to just hang out on Thanksgiving morning. And, um, you know, that really, when I was probably 24, 25, started bringing me back into it. And then I started getting more passionate about hunting. And, um, you know, I kind of suck at fishing, but I still like it, but really got into hunting. And um, through wanting to do that better, I, I started to realize the opportunities that were there uh, really, really that, you know, I was trying to get better and I couldn't find a technology platform to help me. And it was it mind boggling. I mean, this is, this is 2016 when I realized the opportunity and, you know, it, to me, I'm thinking, oh my God, there's so many communities. There's so much technology out there. You can have, if you want to join Runkeeper, there's a whole community of runners that you can connect with and learn. How does this not exist in the outdoors? And I was reading, you know, online about information and I'm getting deer hunting advice from people in Montana or Florida and or Texas. And dude, yeah, it might you might get a whitetail in any of those states out west. They typically hunt different animals, but I mean, they still deer hunt. It's not the same thing. Like, it's not the same tactics. So you you need a way to be able to hit people in your area. And I, I couldn't figure out how to do it online. It was crazy to me. Like, I, how is this, you know, to again, 2016? That's not that long ago. And 
at the at the time I just saw a great opportunity to I wanted to build something I knew I was I, when I started at Oology where I ended up being a creative director I told them like I'm probably going to quit my job at some point to go do something else uh, for me um, you know I I had just gotten fired for my side hustle um, that's a whole other story we can talk about if you guys want to but I, me and my co-founder now we're trying to start another company and he got laid off and they found the documents that we had been working on, on his computer. Uh, uh, so lesson for everybody that has a side hustle, don't sync your Dropbox to your work computer. Um, they ended up finding the operating agreement and they asked me about it and I told them, uh, yeah, yeah, we were working on a company, blah, blah, blah. And they said, why didn't you tell me about this? I said, cause you would have fired me. And they said, oh, that's silly. And then they fired me three days later. Um, so I had just gotten fired for a side hustle. I was like, I'm not doing this again. I just want you to know, I'm probably going to quit at some point. You know, I didn't know when that would be, and it ended up been five years later, but uh, it rolled a lot of what I learned about the web and how people use a product online to what we're doing now. Yeah. And so the pain point that you're solving is it sounds like people having a way to learn about hunting locations and hunting tactics. Talk about what you're, what problem you're solving with this. Yeah. So it's, it's actually evolved quite a bit over the years too. I mean, we started off very much building a community and a, a platform that could build that community and uh, with, with technology. So using technology to connect you to locals, using it to connect you to people that are interested in your exact uh, thing you want to learn. And it's not just hunting. I talk about hunting a lot because that's what I like to do, but people use our platform just for fishing or some people use it just for nature photography or hiking. So it really caters really well to what you want to do. You can think of it as Reddit. You might use it for politics. I might use it for cat memes it doesn't matter like i can it, it really adapts well to to the topics and so we we op started as a social media forum and had a unique way to share and what we noticed over time was there was a really big opportunity with the gear a lot of what it comes down to with with hunting fishing or anything in the outdoors people spend a ton of money on gear and so what we've actually built now is a e-commerce platform that lays over top of our social and we, you know, you think of Instagram, how brands can tag products and photos. We basically built something very similar to that, only we put the consumer in control and we don't cater to specific retailers or manufacturers. We cater to products. So you can search our system. It pulls right now. It's pulling a, a little over 300,000 SKUs. We're adding more all the time. And across those different affiliate partners, you can list like here is what I use to trout fish or here's what I use to deer hunt. And you can share that with people and get advice. You, um, you know, the goal eventually is to learn it, uh, to build a single source shopping experience to where it has all of the reviews that are proprietary to our platform. We'll be able to sort uh, based on who's using the products. So you, you want to, instead of using a like, Hey, show me the top reviewed products. You'll be able to say, I want to see what the best trout fishermen are using uh, and for fly rods and for my area, you know, you can really cater into uh, something that like, it just doesn't exist today. And I mean, we're talking about a level of behavioral data that doesn't even exist on Amazon. So especially in our space, um, you know, Amazon doesn't even carry a lot of outdoor gear, especially on the hunting side, but a lot of these niche outdoor retailers, they don't, they don't carry their gear there. So we're really catering to the nuances of that space and trying to help people we're facilitating gear conversations that we are we noticed were already happening on our platform you know we, people would recommend gear and they're bringing back some janky screenshot that they did from a google search on their phone or they had some god-awful link uh to um and a part like a, a retailer that they just googled and found and what we noticed was hey you know here's the monetization opportunity we could be getting a cut of all, all of that and also what we've done 
for uh, conservation, we, we donate 1% of our revenue of everything we sell through that platform back into nonprofit groups. So, you know, from some, if I bought it from Bass Pro, you know, they, they have a pretty cool program called Roundup, but for the most part, that money's not going into conservation. So we actually have an opportunity for money you're spending anyways, you can get uh, money to go back into conservation through, through without having to donate anything. Yeah. Yeah, that one percent rule is <clears throat> something Salesforce put into place early. That's one of their things they were really well known for. It's Mark yeah. Benioff doing that. Um, for those that don't know how big this industry is and how big of an opportunity, because I'm actually no, I have no idea how big the outdoors and specifically like the hunting gear space is. Talk about how big this this industry is. Yeah, a lot of people are, um, you know, I've had questions like, yeah, you know, you guys should really be doing this in running or or fitness. Well, running is. Um, from what I can tell in my research, it's about a $16 billion economic impact. So it's pretty big. Fitness is bigger. It's uh, $35 billion. Um, so combined, just running and fitness is a, a $50 billion economic impact every year. Well, hunting and fishing is $156 billion every year. So it's three wow. times the size of running and fitness expenditures. If you zoom out to the outdoors overall, we're talking about an $887 billion economic impact uh, had across 102 million people in the outdoor, uh, outdoors, just in the U S. So the market's ginormous. I mean, that the outdoors overall is $2 of every hundred spent in the U S. That's amazing. Talk about early stages, acquiring customers. Cause this is a mobile app and yep. you know, a lot of people, when they think of business ideas, mobile apps are things that pop into their mind first. And they always are wondering, well, how do I gain customers? Talk about the early stages of how you, uh, acquired users. Yeah, so uh, we're a mobile app today. We're actually in the process of building out our web experience right now. That'll launch um, probably early Q2. And but for for right now, we we've primarily you know we we tried a really deep marketing platform to launch our beta, and you know we blew some serious money on some tactics that I wasn't happy with. You know, I did advertising. That was what I did before I started this, and uh, we really have honed in on Facebook, Instagram, and Google. Um, now primarily Facebook and Instagram over the last year, 2019 was very heavy spend and well, very heavy for us. It's not, it's not like if you looked at it across a lot of startups, we haven't spent a ton of money on marketing, but we, we our marketing was heavy on the percentage wise into those. And we've done some podcast advertising, but we, what we like about the social uh, is that you can track the conversion. So we know we're getting what we pay for. And uh, we, we've been able to acquire pretty affordably and we've been expanding more into Google though, because it, we're literally converting at half of what we were a year ago on Google, um, you know, which, which pushes uh, to our Android product right now. So the, the thing we're looking at, we are looking at some expanding that a little bit this year to where we'll start working with some influencers. We created a way to track the downloads so we can actually work with an influencer and pay them per downloads that they drive. So it takes a lot of that. You know, you, you read a lot of stuff that influencer marketing doesn't actually drive leads, blah, blah, blah. Well, we, we found a way around that because we can actually track it back to that person. So like even if uh, we have a way that people can share their profile. So this actually helps us identify, you know, if I notice that somebody's had 130 conversions on their, their go out account, that's a pretty influential person to get. I mean, I, I personally like just sharing it with my friends. That's hard to do. Right. I could not drive 130 downloads of any app. Uh, so if somebody does that, they've got a network. So we can actually find new influencers to work with through this too. Yeah, influencer marketing is something that actually comes up on our podcast consistently. And I'm always interested when you see a, an influencer 
Um, what one? What do you look for? Is it followers? Is it engagement? And then two, are you DMing them? And if you are DMing them, what are you saying to them? Because I think this is a really important part of growing a business, especially on the marketing side, is how to take advantage of influencers. Yeah, uh, we we've done this a couple different ways. Uh, I mean, we've paid influencers. We've we've not paid influencers. Uh, we've done our own ambassador program to have like you know, in the hunting industry, they call it a pro staff, which is essentially people that get free stuff. Most of them don't get paid, but the, I don't, I don't really care about your followers and, and people shouldn't care about followers. Followers can be bought. That's a really stupid metric to use in your marketing tactics. I mean, yeah, you, you want someone that has more than 130, but uh, you know, I can go, I, by the end of this podcast, I could buy 5,000 followers for nothing. I mean, that's, that's just a really silly way to look at it. You have to look at the engagement. What are they reaching? And uh, they may not have bought their followers if they have poor engagement. And the funny thing about Instagram, for example, um, a lot of hunting content's been throttled. So it's not reaching uh, what it used to, for example, like even our own Instagram account, we've got close to 60,000 followers, but our engagement was better 18 months ago. You know, our, our account, you know, I, I think shadow bands are real. I, I think that's a thing um, hmm. that's hit our industry pretty hard. And you know, we'll see some weeks our, our reach is, you know, great. And then some weeks, you know, it's, it's a struggle for us to get 200 likes on a photo and I don't care about likes. I'm just using that as an example. Um, I think likes are a relatively meaningless metric too, but, um, it is somewhat of interest when you're trying to find somebody that has reach. If, if they're, you know, only hitting 1% of their following, that's not good. You know, that's a pretty good way to tell that, that person is probably not actually an influencer. Now, if you find, you know, there are people out there that, that are hitting, you know, somewhere between eight to 10% of their, their network. Those are people that have probably put a lot of sweat equity into growing their, their brand. And, and they have people that actually listen to them. Um, that's really good. That said, we, we look more at YouTube and podcasts for, for true influence. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people follow social media accounts for pretty content and quick digestible, um, you know, brain teasers. I mean, you're not really diving into everybody that you follow. I follow a lot of people on my personal stuff that I don't even know how I started following them. And it's like a constant debate of whether or not I should unfollow them or not. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, you might have a lot of followers, but are they listening to what you're saying? That's an important question to ask. And, and cause like, can you drive meaningful conversions? And We've worked with some influencers and yeah, you can get 2000 comments or likes on this photo, but you know, you only drove 30 app downloads and that's not worth our time. And it's not worth the money to pay a, pay an influencer, even if they got a hundred thousand followers. So influencer marketing is tricky. I'm not an expert. Uh, I I've, I've done probably more than most people with it, but for the most part, if you were going to start doing that, I would look at YouTube because the people that subscribe to a YouTube channel and, and are getting you know, the, those views are, you can fool those two, you know, you still have to look at it holistically, but, uh, YouTube and, and podcast are actually, in my opinion, a much better way to go because people are showing up because they truly want the content. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, and before we get into kind of the, the, the really meat of this, which is those, those lessons that you've learned along the way, last question, I kind of want to get the audience to have an idea of, you know, your progress in this. So talk about, you know, your, your team, funding, where you guys are at, talk about, um, give us a snapshot of, you know, your progress. Yeah. Uh, so we have nine full-time people. We just hired our, our ninth employee. Uh, I have four co-founders. We built, we, 
bootstrapped the first version of this, built it literally in a basement over pizza and beers, nights and weekends, working holidays. And uh, we, we have raised a good chunk of money. Um, I, I think we disclosed this recently. Um, two and a half million was what was recently disclosed in the business first. So, I mean, we've, we've had some funding rounds. We've had, we got accepted into an accelerator last year and it, it's Stadia Ventures. Stadia is one of the, it's considered, I've been told this isn't me, you know, patting myself on the back. It's one of the best sports accelerators in the world. And they've got a network of about 7,000 different individuals in the sports industry. And it, most of the major teams in, across basketball, football, soccer, um, all the all the major brands, you, you know, Top Golf, Polaris, uh, Garmin, you know, they've, they've like the teams are there, the brands are there, and they've got the investors in the space there. And we got into that, and that really, it, it true. I mean, it's more like a rocket propelled grenade than than an acceleration. I mean, our company changed, and and our you know, we were debating on how to bring in another revenue stream and we were looking at subscriptions and we weren't really sure what to do. And we fell into, um, once we got into that accelerator, uh, which they had, I think they had, our cohort had more than 200 companies apply from 40 different countries. And we, we were one of six that were chosen to do it. And it was a 90 day accelerator. It was great, man. I, I encourage people to do them. I do, uh, there are things to consider and I, cause I've, I've been invited to do other ones. You know, we kind of got on some radars. Uh, once, once you get into that network a little bit, they start coming out of the woodwork and there are some really raw deals in my opinion, like the way some of them are structured. So you kind of, you got to look at what the accelerators asking for too. And ours, ours made sense for us. Uh, but that, that really changed us and, and truly accelerated the company. I think that's an important part of our history. And then, so, so we grew last year, we hired a couple employees last year. And again, we just hired our, uh, ninth full-time employee here. And, um, you know, we're adding clients. I mean, we've already signed a couple clients this year and, you know, we're, we're two revenue and, uh, we haven't disclosed publicly how many users we have, but, um, I mean, it's tens of thousands and, uh, we, I mean, in a, in a average week, we're getting 50% of our monthly actives back. So it's a really sticky product. But yeah, we're two revenue. The product's being used. Um, we're we're trying to figure out how to scale it now. And and you know we're in some ways we launched an ecom product when we realized the opportunity was there, and we've we've had to go back through and you know rethink some things. And you know you, you in some ways you go back not to the drawing board, but you you realize that you you know that that people have told me that and you guys can see what I'm doing. But it's you know drawing a company is not or building a company is not like this. It's not like you're just constantly iterating and getting bigger. It's more like a if my kid were to pick up a crown and scribble, you know, you're, you're chasing down ideas and seeing if they you're validating. And if it, it works, you iterate and try again, and you're constantly trying to build on that. Sometimes stuff just doesn't work. And sometimes you know, you're going to fail. If you're not failing, you're not taking enough risk, in my opinion. So, you know, we, we've had some failures. And we've pivoted and um i mean right now we're 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 learning the e-com game i wouldn't i would not at all say that i you know i don't have a background I, we built e-commerce websites where i was before but um i'm i'm talking to anybody and everybody i can to to learn from them in e-com so yeah and i think it's a great transition into when things are stacked against you um you know the big lesson you you had sent me an email i had emailed you and said hey uh, brad send me you know your biggest lesson that you've learned throughout your career and and for you it was you know, persistence. It was pushing through negativity, pushing through perceptions that are placed on you because you're not an ideal 
uh, image of what an entrepreneur should be. Um, and you've got to teach yourself along the way, which is what you just said. So talk to maybe two, three, if you have one big one, just talk to a couple points uh, in your career where somebody said, um, you know, this is not going to happen for you and how you overcame that. Because I think, you know, every listener, everybody has that moment, right? And so I would love you to tell those stories um, that you have personally. Yeah. Um, so, so kind of what I mentioned to you before, there's always going to be somebody out there that says you can't do it. And I, I mean, I've had this this week since I sent you that email. We had somebody, uh, it was an investor who I had, I had asked to get on the phone. I just wanted to chat with this guy. I actually wasn't trying to pitch him. And I think he thought I was. And he's like, yeah, we could do a chat, but I really, you know, here's why I don't think this is going to work. And he proceeds to just, you know, aggressively lay out all the, all the reasons we're going to fail. And, you know, I declined the call. I, I've learned to, um, you know, it's not a useful uh, amount of hit. I, I don't want your courtesy calls. And um, it, it's not good for him. It's not good for me. It's not good for me to sit for an hour of hearing someone crap all over my business, right? Um, that's negative energy that I don't need. People are always going to tell you you can't do it. And I mean, this has been from day one. This has been through my career. And this is kind of what you're talking about with some of what we chatted about earlier. You know, I, um, I quit journalism and, and photography and, and, uh, photography overall. I was mostly doing photography, but I became a social media content creator and started in an agency. I did not have an advertising background. And again, things have changed a lot in my short career. When I started, it was more important. Like a degree was definitely looked at differently than I think it is now, even within advertising. But I remember like literally having people tell me that, um, you know, I, you could probably work your way up and do this social media thing and you might be a social media manager one day. And, and like that was the, the ceiling that I was being assigned. And like I, I was told I couldn't even be a copywriter, like that I would never be able to make it as a copywriter. And, you know, once I became a copywriter, it was like I've, I had people tell me, you know, you're, you're not creative director material. Now, I did have some great bosses along the way that believed in me, but, you know, it's, it's all, one no can sometimes overshadow those 15 people encouraging you too. And, you know, and then when I, I turned around to found go wild, um, there was a lot of skepticism and there was a lot of, uh, negative people. You know, I, I wasn't a numbers guy. I I'm a journal, I have a journalism degree. I've been doing social media. What do I know about building a business? Right. Um, I already, I was already married with a kid, you know, I mean, whether or not you like it, like people look at that and say like, how much time are you really going to be able to put into this? And, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't know that any of that matters. I don't know that like, I, I, I try to keep that in mind when we're hiring too. I don't, we just hired somebody that's going to have to learn some new code here. And that's not normally something we're into, but he aligned with what we were trying to do. And, and he had a lot of the things we look for in employees. Um, and I think, you know, the way I've done it and, and there's probably some other uh, milestones that you were asking about of like, when have I been told no? I mean, I've had investors who have literally just like, completely shred our business for an hour to the point where I try to get out of the meeting in 15 minutes. It's like, Oh no, 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 we'll keep talking. And then they continue 45 more minutes of shredding it up. And you know, you just have to put those aside. And I think channeling some of that too, into motivation and, you know, I, I don't want to say I hold a grudge, but I, I use that stuff to channel for energy to keep me motivated and to, you know, keep me inspired for what we're doing. Um, you know, I, I, I've had, I've got two or three like investor moments in my, my pitching career that like, I actually keep them in mind intentionally because it, you know, I, I think of like the day uh, we're going to prove them wrong. And that gives me a, a lot of excitement. Uh, you know, it Fuel. gives me, 
it, yeah, it's, it feels absolutely feels me. I tell those stories to my team. I want them to know the the negative, uh, the negative things people are saying. I, I believe in keeping them excited and positive, but we need to know the challenges that people are throwing out at us to make, if we're aware of them, then we can overcome them for sure. But, you know, throughout, throughout my, my whole story of, of being told you can't be a creative director, even, um, I didn't just work hard. I mean, I read, consumed podcasts. Like I met for a while, that was my goal. I was like, I want to be a creative director before I'm 30. And so I put literally everything in my life into becoming that. I studied the work of the, you know, the old guys, the David Ogilvies. How did they do what they did? You know, um, how, how do I go back to the basics that I might've learned if I had an advertising degree? And, you know, I did that with, with my startup too. I spent four months, um, once I knew I wanted to go into this, looking into entrepreneurs who had done exactly what I wanted to do with building communities, building sticky products. And man, I, that's all I consumed. I put my kid to bed at eight and I would do that until 1am. I would wake up at five and I would do that until I had to leave my house at eight to get to work on time. And it, I know it's a grind and it's painful and it's not healthy for everybody. But I mean, if, if you, you'll know, you, you'll have the personality for it before you even really start the business. It's like when you're educating yourself and in totally. that process, you know, you're going to, you either have the stomach for it or you don't. And after doing this a while, I've really been able to like, I can, I can now with a lot of employees, you can, you can pick up on people that have that mindset by asking them how they're learning, what are they doing to further their own education? And those are the things you want to hear. Um, I'm not personal times important, but driven people are what we look for. You know, I look for other entrepreneurs who've, who've also been told they can't do something or they, they may be entrepreneur, they're entrepreneurial minded. They may not have started a company, but they've got the same drive. And, you know, I, I think back to those moments every time we hire, I think back to, you know, the, the, the things that people have told me. And, and like when I'm interviewing somebody and you ask them why they want to look for something else, you know, it's great to hear that they can't do all the things they want to be able to do. They want, they want more, freedom to be able to try things and more room for failure like that. That's what you want. I, I kind of went on a tangent. I don't even know if I hit the original <laughs> question. Uh, I think I kind of deviated a little bit from some of the things you're asking about, but I mean, the, all those early days have still shaped, you know, here we are four years later from the found or three and a half years later. And I'm still, you know, very much um, driven in, in how we hire, even uh, trying to find people who were doing what I was doing. I think it's really important. Yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about people looking at you and saying this is going to work or looking at you and saying this is not what an entrepreneur looks like, we had Drew Parrish on an episode in the past, founder of Make Time uh, here in Lexington. And one of his big things was, you know, entrepreneurs, they're not something that uh, is normal. They're, anom they're anomalies. They're people that are not fitting, you know, of the mold and you can't just magically form an entrepreneur. It's a mindset, like you said, it's a personality trait. And, yep. um, you know, that was something that really stuck with me with what you just said was, you know, entrepreneurs are on this planet to do what other people tell them they're not supposed to do. Right. And, you know, throughout your career, you've been proving that, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I've had people, when I first started this thing, people, people would ask questions like, well, you don't have a financial background. Who's going to manage the money? And I'm like, that's the thing I can figure out. Like I, you know, I can find yeah. a role that only does that, but to, yes. to, I'm telling, I'm showing you, I'm showing you, I have this opportunity. I have a completely unsaturated industry. I'm showing you it worked in other industries. I'm showing you how much money this, uh, this spends or this, this audience spends. I mean, the average hunter spends $2,800 a year on hunting. And, and now wow. we now look, it's, it's turned into a, an e-com product where we have a chance to catch her somewhere 
somewhere between five to 12% of those expenses every year, you know, but when people are, well, but you don't, you don't have the background to manage the money. Like that's, you're asking the wrong questions, you know, no mold for an entrepreneur. There's no right mold that you just fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, a lot of entrepreneurs can't fit a mold because I, you know, I, I always kind of joke, um, and self-deprecate a little bit. Like I'm not really good at anything, but I'm 70% good at a lot of stuff. And, um, the, you know, I think there's something to that, man. I think finding people who are flexible and comfortable, uh, they're, they're comfortable when no one else would be, they're comfortable with the unknown. Um, you know, I, we, we kind of joke here, uh, of how bizarre I, I would have been freaked out in my first job to know that, you know, when you think of runway as an entrepreneur, you're always counting how many months you have left until you're out on the street. Right. And you, you learn to, to thrive in that. And you learn, you know, when things get tough, uh, that's when we've seen our greatest success. We didn't, we didn't raise as much as we wanted to in a round. And, um, I had a, a billionaire actually that I ran into at a party and just coincidentally ended up talking to a billionaire and this guy's been a successful, uh, investor his whole career. And he, he, I I'm in the back of my head, I'm thinking I'm going to close this round because this guy's going to give me money. And you know what he did? He said, you need this you, you need to not be able to raise the money because you don't know what you don't know yet. You're going to be more efficient by raising 25% less than you wanted to. And you're going to have struggles and you guys are going to find solutions that you didn't even know you needed yet. And dude, he was so right. I'm so glad we didn't get that money because we would have wasted it. Like we wouldn't have been as efficient and uh, you know, we wouldn't have learned the lessons that we've learned now. And now, you know, we're to the point, like I'm, I'm ready to, I know what we can do with, I'm a first time entrepreneur. So you know, I, I live in dog years. Six months for me is, is three years for somebody working at a, a you know a <laughs> Fortune 500, and I fully believe that, man. Like, uh, I I'm, it's aging me. Like, I, I had hair when I started this, guys. No, uh, but the um, I'm bald for anybody that's listening to the podcast, as all of you are. Uh, but the you know, I, I fully think that um, there those hardships do teach you, and the people that can instead of panicking, instead of, uh, you know, in, in a normal job, you might say, F this, man, I don't know if I'm going to be here in a year. You say, dude, let's go figure out how to build a product that we can scale and get people to fund. And then we can take it. And then we're going to, then we'll, we'll be able to do the series A. Like they look at that as excitement and opportunity and it's a different breed, man. And it's not for everybody. I think my parents have long thought I was crazy when I first started this. Like, um, I know my wife, you know, I, I quit my job, um, the, the week my wife was due, I literally, my last day was the week she was due to have our baby. And, um, I know it was some, there was some discomfort there, you know, um, her dad worked 40 years at, at yum and really proud of that. He did. I mean, he did really great at yum, but you know, this is a foreign mindset to her. She didn't grow up around this and I didn't necessarily grow up around entrepreneurship. Uh, I mean, my dad runs his own company in, in a lot of ways, but it's so different, dude. Um, but you know, I think, finding, finding those discomforts and like learning from that is, is one of the most important things an entrepreneur can do. And it does take a special person to be able to do it. And again, I don't say that to, to pat myself on the back for being special. I just think you're going to have to find ways to, to be fluid and you're going to have to find way, you know, and, and honestly, I, for what we've learned is if you're, you're, your end game might not be what you thought it was. You might end up in a different place and, and that's okay too. Yeah. And, you know, to pull out one more thing from what you've been saying, it's to have the self-awareness to know what your strengths are and bet on those. Yeah. Bet on those and build a team uh, around that. Yeah. And I've, uh, 
you know, I did that with with our team. We had four co-founders and some people, oh, that's too many. You know, you, you guys are going to argue and blah, blah, blah. And dude, it's BS. Like pe people that try to like cookie cutter a team like that. You know, I do think I do think that single founders have a, a challenging road that I didn't. I do. I, I'll say that. Um, I think I, I couldn't have done this on my own. And I, I thought originally that I was going to contract stuff out. I was going to hire people. And I'm so glad I did not go down that. Um, I, I built a team that really had like the pillars of what we needed to do, data science, development and design. Those are my other three co-founders, those exact pillars. Uh, Chris Glime was development. Zach Grimes is our now, now our president, but he was our data scientist. And Donovan Sears designed the whole platform and designs all of our, uh, all of our platform today. And, you know, I can't do those things. And, uh, you know, I, I handled the marketing and the funding and I've, I've done a, worn a lot of hats over the years, but you know, as we've been able to scale and hire, finding people who help with things I'm not good at or those other guys can't do is really important. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, you look for people who can't, you know, Chris was not a backend developer, but he taught himself to do backend until we could afford to hire one. I think you have to find those kind of people. And, and knowing, you mentioned knowing your skill sets, you know, I've kind of, I've come to realize that one of my skill sets is team building and, and keeping them motivated. And, um, you know, keeping everybody excited about what we're doing. And I, I think, I think that gets downplayed a little, a lot of that comes from my storytelling. You know, I'm, I'm good at pitching. I know my strength. I'm, I'm, I, that's a strength of mine. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong or egotistical about knowing and acknowledging a strength. Um, and I, I thought I could do that part on my own for a long time. And I learned in 2019, my co-founder, Zach, who started doing the accelerator with me, me and him started doing pitch practices together. And when you get into those mock Q and A's, Zach was a beast. And I'm like, Oh my God, I, I should have been pitching this whole time. Maybe we would have raised that whole round if I'd had Zach there to answer the more technical questions or to get into the data side. And, you know, so, so even, even when you know your strengths, that something will come along like that and surprise you. But, you know, when you're, when you are building that team, I think it is worth, it's almost worth like, just write it down, write out what you're good at and what you're, I, I did a, uh, a cap or like a, yeah, it was like a cap table exercise when I was trying to figure out like, you know, you're trying to figure out equity and like, Oh God, how do I split all this stuff up? And that was a really good exercise for me to see all the roles that I was going to be doing and what those guys would do. I mean, it, you need to think through all that stuff. You need like your founders are very important and identifying uh, the holes that you don't have. People are going to, like I said, somebody asked me about my financial background. I mean, that, that kind of stuff comes up all the time. So finding the right people to fill in those gaps is, is critical. Totally, man. I resonate with that a lot. Um, so let's get into, we always like to end the segment in this, in an episode on tying it back to the region, talking about the good things about Louisville, the bad things about Louisville, where you see Louisville heading. Let's start with, um, let's start with the good. So what are some things that you've enjoyed and noticed that are major pros with starting a company in Louisville? There are certain job types that we have a lot of talent here. Um, I, I think there's no shortage of founders here. I think there are a lot of good ideas. I mean, I know we don't have the community that others do. Uh, when, when we got into St. Louis with our accelerator, my, I, I realized there was a whole new world uh, in the Midwest that I just didn't even know about. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to uh, knock on Louisville, but they're, they're just a decade ahead of us, uh, if not more than where we are. But, but what it did help me realize is, is the some of the talent that we have here. And I think, you know, that's a good thing. There are a lot of certain types of developers here. So if you're looking to build a web interface, if that's very critical to your, your brand, man, you got so much good talent here. There's a lot of really great front end developers, back end developers, designers. Um, I think our strong ad agency 
groups that are here has helped with that. Um, the I, there are now, and this wasn't even four years ago. Things have changed. There's a lot of um, structure that's got put in place with with a lot of different groups that are happening now. There's a lot of resources here, um, and and I don't think this is just me not knowing about them. I, I mean, I I'm a like ferocious networker and. I was just hitting a lot of dead ends when I started this thing. And now I know about a lot of these resources that have kind of started up over the last few years, even a lot of these co-working spaces that, that exist now. Um, you know, a lot of those, those didn't, that wasn't around. You're, you're now seeing uh, Microsoft buy into the community and you're seeing a lot of companies invest to it. That's really exciting stuff. But, but overall, like one of the best things I think is, is here is, is the, the web tech talent that uh, from what I found, you know, uh, we, we just hired, um, I guess our first developer in Louisville, I mean, this is the first time we've been able to find talent here for, for that mobile development stuff. Um, I mean, honestly, it's just a tough community to, to hire a mobile developer. Um, you know, you're competing against the really large companies that are here and they pay well and that's the security. So leaving that cushy job to go to startup, it takes a right mindset and we've struggled to find that, but there, this is a really strong network for somebody that wants to build you know, if it's an enterprise software that's going to be used primarily on a desktop, you've got a great community to do that. You've got a huge foundation of knowledge that knows how to do that. Healthcare, Louisville has a fantastic healthcare investor network. It's got a lot of really great um, entrepreneurs in that space. That's actually been a struggle for me. But if that's your idea, you know, I, I show up and they're like, all right, what are you doing in the healthcare space? You know, it's like, that's the, they're not, they're not literally, they obviously know we're not doing that when we show up, but, but it's almost like that. It's like, they're so used to seeing healthcare companies and a lot of those companies get the revenue a lot quicker than we, we have. So um, in some ways that hurts you if you're not in the, in that space, uh, logistics or healthcare or, or something like that. But um, yeah, for, for the question, like my short answer on like, what's good about Louisville, if you're, if you're certain types of companies, you've got a really great talent pool here. Yep. All right. Negative. What are some things that you've noticed that need to improve in Louisville? The angel network, no doubt. Like yeah. the biggest, yeah. my biggest criticism to Louisville is absolutely not that we don't have them. Uh, we have a lot of high net worth angels in Louisville that are not risk averse at all. And I, I think a lot of that, and I say it all, like, I, I mean, like I've hit people that like they want a slam dunk that, that, that it's. You're the saying they are risk averse? They're very risk averse. They, are, they, they don't, okay, they don't. Yeah. Okay. They are. Yeah. Sorry. It's the, my Southern accent comes out after seven. Um, the, the, um, yeah, man, they, they don't want to take risk. How about that? Uh, they, they, um, I've, I've hit so many people that they have to have the stars aligned before they'll pull the trigger. And I've gone through six meetings sometimes to have somebody, you know, on, we'll have a hundred thousand dollar minimum on a round. And it's like, well, I'll give you 10 grand. I'm like, you just put me through six, <laughs> rounds of due diligence, you know, and that's one of the red flags I've learned. Hey, um, if, if you need two rounds of follow-up meetings, it's probably not going to happen. And that's when I, I push back. I mean, I, I'm, I get pretty aggressive at a certain point because I've just been through that so many times and I've, I've had verbals on, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollar deals that fall apart and follow up because the valuation's too high or, you know, it's taken too long to get the revenue or it's not like the other deals they've seen. Uh, they don't know the space and, you know, this isn't this isn't unique to the outdoors. It's not unique to social media. I find this with the whole community that I've talked to. I've not talked to anybody that's like, oh man, it was so easy to raise half a million dollars here yep. within the Angel Network. 
people struggle with this in this area. And I, I think there's a lot of really good things that are happening in Louisville to counter this. I think there's too much focus on recruiting talent here and not enough focus on educating the angel investors because we don't have a founder shortage. We don't have a talent shortage in a lot of ways, uh, but people can't get ideas off the ground without money. And you know that we don't have the network right now to sustain that. It is changing. And I mean, it's changing. I, I do think this is changing quickly uh, now. I wouldn't have said that maybe even 12 months ago, but with a lot of the groups I'm talking to, there's a lot of investors who are fed up with this and there's a lot of uh, or fed up with it or they see an opportunity. And it's really exciting. Like the, I, I think in five or 10 years, like maybe, maybe less than that, five, I'll say five years. I think in five years, what I'm complaining about now probably will be like, 50% better than where it is. There are a lot of groups that are raising money that for this. And there's a lot of groups that are seeing the opportunity that, of the talent that's here. It's more affordable than, you know, buying into an, a coast company. It's, it's more affordable than even our neighbors up to Chicago or down to Atlanta. And, and there's great ideas here that just die because they can't find funding. Yeah. You're definitely not the first person to tell us that. And to tell yeah. me that, you know, separately outside of this podcast, we hear that all the time and that's Kentucky, I think in general. Um, yeah, and that's something that, like you said, I, I really hope improves over the years. Last question is always. Well, hang on, I, I will say, yeah. I will say, um, I was really over like trying to do a business here for a while. Like it was just so frustrating, and I, I thought it was a nuance to Kentucky. Um, I will say, if there's any solace for anybody, you know, I got out of this network, and I have a really robust network in Texas and St. Louis now. Dude, Dallas is crawling with money, and. And it's actually pretty similar and people are still, it's almost like a, you know, a, there is a bit of a Midwest mindset and, and that they want those slam dunks still, even, even in places like Dallas. Um, I met a buttload of investors this year in Dallas and um, we had a lot of the same struggles with some of them. And, you know, I think a lot of the angels in St. Louis, even though it's a more progressive, they're ahead of us in a lot of their infrastructure with their code academies and whatnot, but I, I see a lot of that there too. So that's helped me. That's helped me swallow the pill a little bit more is knowing that, you know, this is something that anybody from, you know, Richmond, Virginia out to Bozeman, Montana is dealing with. Um, it's, it, that's not necessarily a unique thing to Louisville or yeah. Kentucky. Got it. Okay. And last question I always like to, like to ask and kind of give you the option to go two ways with this, which is we always want to end on a forward looking positive statement. And some, some of our guests are able to tie in their company into Louisville. So the question is, forward-looking statement for your company or for Louisville, pick one and tell us where you see the future going. Um, you know, I, I think Louisville is pivoting. And I think looking forward, there are a lot of innovations being made. Um, I, I almost wanted to say that, like, there's a type of company. I just think we're seeing a lot more structure a lot more investors who are willing to do this i think there's a lot more founders who are finding ways to get into these these networks you know I, one thing you had mentioned before was like who's who deserves a shout out and I, I thought about that and i see companies who are making use of these resources um you know two of the the earlier companies that came to mind was adam gifford with tackle hack and and what he's doing in the e-com space it's really cool to see another outdoors fintech company uh, pulling some things together here struggling with a lot of the same stuff i struggled with but it's exciting for me to see him 
you know, he was a vote uh, awards and I know he actually had, I can't, gosh, I wish I could remember what he just got awarded. Uh, there's another thing that he just did that, that is exciting. You know, he's taken advantage of the resources and a lot of these are new resources that are coming together. Right. Um, and then Bradley Davis with pod chaser. I think he's doing some really cool stuff and I'm seeing, there's a lot of really cool tech companies that are budding up here. And I don't, I, you know, I used to think like we, we actually have had a running joke here for about 18 months that we're growing a pineapple in the Midwest. And I think, you know, the, the soil's changing. That's what I'll say. Like, I, I think there's the, the climate's changing, the attitude's changing. And the other person I had the shout out, like Katie Blakely just sold pet first to MetLife. And like, you, we see stories like this that aren't healthcare necessarily. It's still insurance, but it's, 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 it, which is more common in Louisville. You know, we have Humana here. So it's like, you see a lot of that, but she built that from the ground up, man. And that's a really cool exit for, for this, this environment. I'm excited to see companies like that succeeding here. And I'm excited to see the network and, and some of the funds that are coming together. And I think uh, the, there, there are a lot of really great leaders who aren't necessarily voted into a position of power or anything they're taking it upon themselves there's a lot of people who understand the value of giving back and they're not waiting on somebody else to come in and put in that infrastructure they're they're doing it they're taking it upon themselves to mentor they're taking it upon themselves to uh offer advice to people there's a lot you know uh that that survey that um Techstars did there was uh original like even a year ago i think there was a lot of people who were it found that they keep their cards close to the vest Man, I'm seeing a lot of people, hey man, send me your deck and I'm gonna I'm gonna share it with my investors. I think the more we can do that, the better. And I'm seeing more of that. Um, and maybe I'm more connected into it. You know, you always live in a little bit of uh, an echo chamber, but I think the more we can do that, the more you can help the people you meet, help them succeed, it's gonna come back around, man. Don't don't look for it. Don't do it because you want somebody to introduce you to their investors too. Just help each other. And if we build a stronger ecosystem, what you're doing is solving the angel problem I was talking about. If these angels start to see all this good stuff happening over time, we're going to chip away at that. They're going to see new opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have found before. You're going to help somebody get funded that maybe, maybe uh, you know, that next round of funding is what took them to the next level. That strengthens Louisville, strengthens Kentucky. And over time, you know, that itself is you know going to make that that angel network that much more likely to invest in us and and to keep their funds here so if i see anything it's the fact that the community is working really well together and there's a lot of people taking it upon themselves to fix the problem which i love god i love that change the soil the soil is changing that was yeah that's awesome love that hey thanks for joining brad we really enjoyed Absolutely. having you on and telling your story and, and giving us your, you know, your lessons man thanks guys uh, I, i'll uh actually i we i'll, I'll i'm going to leave one more anecdote We've kind of been embracing, um, taking a little pride in the soul, 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 as we would say, where I'm from. I told you it comes out. It's after I, I've been pitching all day, guys. So like I've had my, uh, you guys know what code switching is? Uh, you, no, you, no, I can't say so, I do. So code switching is where you, you can walk into a room and you can uh, affect your dialect to where if, if you guys are from New York, I can clean up my accent to where it's not horribly offensive <laughs> to you. But, uh, you know, if I'm like talking to my, my mamma, as I'd say, my dialect changes. So I've been pitching all day. So my, my code switching must be wearing off. But, you know, I, I think of, um, you know, we, we joke a lot about this region and, you know, uh, the, the running joke around my founders and I is that uh, people are going to know about Silicon Holler soon enough. And so, uh. you know, really taking pride in what we have. Um, I love that we're the underdog, man, and I, I hope that people will take pride in where we are instead of complaining about it uh, and really get out there and, and do something to affect change. <laughs>